We're in a part of Hebrews which focuses on Jesus' sacrifice, his life that was poured out on the cross. That's the subject of Hebrews chapter 8 through to chapter 10. And last week we looked at the first part of chapter 9. We heard about what we could call the subjective benefit of Jesus' sacrifice. In other words, we heard about how his sacrifice impacts and affects us. It enables us to live with a deep inner peace. The peace that comes with knowing God has nothing against us. Because the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin, it's able to cleanse the guilt of every bitter thought and every evil deed. Peace in our hearts is the subjective result of Jesus' sacrifice. But in order to enjoy that subjective benefit, we have to see what objective difference Jesus' sacrifice made. What concrete change did Jesus' sacrifice bring about? Only when I can, when I can see that can I really experience peace. Only then do I know my guilt has been washed away. If I don't see what Jesus achieved on the cross, I will never really be sure that he actually can cleanse my guilt. If you've watched any rugby recently, you'll know how important video replays are nowadays. And they illustrate, in a small way, this truth that our subjective experience rests on objective reality. So suppose you watch a player from your team dive across the line and plant the ball among a big tangle of arms and legs. What do you feel at that moment if you're a rugby fan? Probably a surge of excitement plus a big dose of uncertainty. Did he touch the ball down or not? I couldn't see. Did he let go of it on the way to the ground? Was someone else's arm or body underneath the ball? Your excitement in that situation is held back by uncertainty. And it's going to stay that way until the action is replayed on the big screen and the referee raises his arm. That official confirmation changes your subjective experience. Now you know your team really did score a try. You finally have good reason to jump up and down. And that's what our passage this morning is here to do for us. It's here to show what Jesus actually achieved on the cross. So we will have good reason to jump up and down. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. If you haven't turned there already, in the church Bible it's page 1207 and in the large print 1870. Back in chapter 8, we were introduced to the new covenant. New covenant between God and his people. It was a covenant that had been promised by God in the Old Testament. And it was then brought about by Jesus Christ. And now chapter 9 is going to tell us more about this new covenant. The first 14 verses 
spoke about Jesus' blood. He offered himself as a sacrifice. And now we're told in verse 15, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect when the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. This is God's word. Verse 15 returns to the topic of the new covenant that was raised earlier in the book. And if you and I are going to understand how the new covenant works in the Bible, we first have to understand how covenants work in the Bible. Verses 16 to 22 are going to tell us covenants always involve blood. And... Covenant blood works two ways. In our English translations, we find the word will in verses 16 and 17. That's a very unfortunate red herring. The word is covenant. That's how it's translated in verses 15 and 18. And that's how it should be translated in verses 16 and 17 as well. The same Greek word is used in all four verses. So this is what we are told in verses 16 and 17. In the case of a covenant, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it. Because a covenant is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. What does that mean? Well, when we looked at chapter 8, we said that covenant 
is a legal arrangement between two parties. In the case of a biblical covenant, it's between God and the people. A covenant involves promises and obligations. In the Bible, it's always God who sets the terms of a covenant. God says to human beings, here are the terms, here are my own commitments, and here are your obligations. And the covenant was always ratified, in other words, it was always put into effect with blood. The blood sealed the deal. We saw last week, blood is always a sign that things are serious. That's true today as much as it ever was. But beyond that, we can still ask, what exactly was the meaning of the blood? What precisely did it signify in a covenant? Well, it had a two-way significance. We'll see in a moment, during a covenant-making ceremony, the people were sprinkled with blood. And God's dwelling place was sprinkled with blood, the tabernacle. So the blood had significance both for the people and for God. Verses 16 and 17 show the significance for the people. The blood symbolized their death if they broke the covenant. They were sprinkled with blood and the meaning was, may I die if I don't keep my covenant obligations. A curse beyond me if I'm unfaithful. And that is what got the translators all tangled up with these verses. This is why they decided to use the word will. Because how can this be about a covenant? People don't die when they make a covenant. No, they don't. Not literally, but they do die symbolically. The animal blood represents what will happen to these people if they're unfaithful. And until that symbolism was carried out, the covenant didn't come into effect. The whole covenant arrangement was only tentative up to the point where symbolic death occurred. At that point, the covenant was confirmed and it came into effect. The blood meant the covenant people had agreed to the terms. They would keep the covenant or they would suffer death as covenant breakers. Now, as we try to picture this, it would be very helpful to have an example, wouldn't it? So we can see how it worked. And we're given an example in verses 18 to 22. When God brought the Israelites out of their slavery in Egypt... He led them to Mount Sinai in the desert. And there at Mount Sinai, he gave the people his covenant law. That law set out how God's people were to live. The people's covenant responsibility was to obey. And if they obeyed, God's commitment was to treat them as his treasured possession. That covenant was ratified by a ceremony at Mount Sinai. That's what verse 18 means by the first covenant. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. 
When Moses had proclaimed every command of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Then he said, this is the blood of the covenant, which God has commanded you to keep. Blood sprinkled on the people means death for covenant breakers. Now, obviously, we're talking about a very large group of people here in Exodus. A few bowls of blood are not going to go very far. So apparently, the blood was diluted with water. Wool was attached to branches of hyssop, which made a kind of brush. Those brushes were then dipped in the diluted blood, and that allowed everyone to be given a little sprinkle. According to Exodus chapter 24, the people all said, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. And then they were sprinkled. So this was no light, offhand promise the people were making. The sprinkled blood made this deadly serious. It added a solemn weight to their promise. The commitment was, we will do everything the Lord has said, and if we don't, may we die. And how many religious people are living with that kind of understanding today? As far as they see it, their standing with God rests on how they perform. And I'm not thinking here so much of nominally religious people here in the UK. There are plenty of those, of course. But around the world, how many seriously religious people are living this way? As they see it, their standing with God rests on their performance. Their hope for the future rests on their performance. Now, of course, most of those people would never dream of using the word covenant. But as far as they see it, this is the arrangement between God and humanity. If we perform, God's happy and he'll probably like us. But there is a fatal flaw in that understanding. There's a fatal flaw in that arrangement. If we go back to Mount Sinai, we'll see what the flaw is. Moses has several bowls of blood. Half of it he has sprinkled on the people. What does he do with the other half? Verse 21. In the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. If the blood sprinkled on the people meant death for covenant breakers, blood sprinkled on the tabernacle meant death deals with sin. From God's perspective, the death of the covenant breaker pays for sin. It turns aside his holy wrath against sin. 
That's the symbolism of cleansing the tabernacle with blood. The tabernacle was where God dwelt. The blood put things right in God's presence. The blood meant evil has not been ignored. God has been true to his holy character. He's a God who takes evil seriously and deals with it. The death of the covenant breaker proves that. When sin has been punished by death, God's just and fair wrath has been satisfied. So the death of the covenant breaker makes forgiveness possible. But we don't have to be rocket scientists to see the problem with that. Under the terms of the first covenant, the lawbreaker has to die before he can be forgiven. So while it sounds good to say if we perform, God will bless us, the flip side of the old covenant was if we fail, we will be destroyed. If we fail, we have to pay for our failure with death. And all of us discover sooner or later, every single one of us does fail. And the price of our forgiveness is our death. So if we go back to the Old Testament, what we would expect is that the Israelites would be wiped out. If we read the Old Testament, we realize very quickly on, they all failed, even the best of them. So we would expect all of them to be destroyed. But that is not what happened. God didn't actually impose the terms of the Sinai Covenant. Not fully. Yes, there were many occasions in Israel where God punished sin. And yes, Israel was sent into exile as punishment for sin. But if God had strictly imposed the terms of the covenant, the people of Israel would have vanished without trace. In fact, the Old Testament only gives us glimpses of judgment. And those glimpses show us how terrible the full measure of God's judgment would be. But at the end of the Old Testament, we know God has held back his judgment on sin. His old covenant people, Israel, still exist. He didn't follow through on the terms of the covenant. And the New Testament draws our attention to that fact. We read earlier from Romans chapter 3. Paul says, in his forbearance... God left the sins committed under that covenant unpunished. God let things lie. His hand of judgment didn't fall, not properly. Today we talk about a stay of execution. That is what Israel got. God's judgment hung over them, it didn't fall. But sooner or later, it had to fall. And that's where Jesus and the new covenant come in. Verses 23 to 26 show us 
the God who takes both sides. Through Jesus' sacrifice, God took his own side and he took the side of the covenant breaker. At the cross, God punished sin and he made it possible for sinners to be forgiven. And so today, sinners don't have to die to pay for their sin. Their sin can be forgiven because of Jesus' death in the place of sinners. This is the heart of the book of Hebrews. It's the heart of the New Testament. So in verse 23, speaking of animal sacrifices that sealed the old covenant, we read this. It was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things, that's the tabernacle, to be purified with these sacrifices. That's animal sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands. There was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But he has appeared once for all at the culmination of the ages to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. Here is how the new covenant is different from the old. In the new covenant, God doesn't demand blood. He offers his own blood. God the Son took the punishment that was due to covenant breakers. He died the death of the covenant breaker. One writer says, the new covenant is based on the self-giving love of God himself. God doesn't demand blood, he offers his own. The Sinai covenant said, death to those who are unfaithful. But when Jesus set up the new covenant, he said, I will die the death of the unfaithful. I will take the curse of the covenant breaker. Now there are many things that have not changed from the old covenant. Sin has not become any less serious. Evil doesn't matter any less. It can still only be paid for by blood and death. But under the new covenant, it doesn't have to be my blood and death. I can be forgiven and live if I put my hope in the one who died for me. At the beginning, I mentioned how rugby fans can only truly celebrate when the score has been confirmed by the big screen and the referee's raised arm. The subjective experience of joy has to be based on those objective realities. Otherwise, it's a pretty half-hearted and doubtful joy. These verses in Hebrews provide the objective reality for us. 
This is what our joy and peace is based on. This is the concrete cause for our celebration as Christians. Jesus' death in our place and the Father's raised arm to welcome his Son into heaven. This is our reason to jump up and down. Through faith in Jesus, we are welcome in heaven too. We're not just begrudgingly let off the hook by God. We are counted as faithful men and women. And so we receive the reward that is due to covenant keepers. We might say, well, we don't deserve that. We haven't kept the covenant faithfully. We haven't obeyed perfectly. No, but Jesus has. And just as our forgiveness comes through him, our covenant inheritance comes through him as well. He earned forgiveness for us and he earned an inheritance for us. So in the new covenant, we find not only the God who takes both sides, but also the God who shares his own rewards. Look back up to the start of our passage in verse 15. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom, to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. There are two aspects to the new covenant in Christ. We've already looked at the forgiveness aspect. And when it comes to forgiveness, notice here how Christ's death worked backwards in time. We saw earlier during the time of the old covenant, God didn't carry out the penalty for breaking the covenant. In large measure, he allowed sin to go unpunished. But he never forgot that sin. He never said, it's all right, it doesn't matter. God's judgment on sin hung like a sword suspended in the sky. Until the day God took the punishment on himself. So Jesus' death doesn't just mean forgiveness for your sin and mine. It means forgiveness for Abraham's sin and David's sin and Rahab's sin and all the other old covenant men and women who put their faith in God. Jesus' death set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. They are forgiven and accepted by God on the same basis as you and me. And they will enjoy the same eternal inheritance as you and me. That's the second aspect of the new covenant in Christ. And that's what our passage ends with. Look down again to verse 27. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. 
There are many new covenant blessings that come to us here and now, today. In other places, the New Testament describes them for us. But here, the focus is on our eternal inheritance. When Christ returns, it will not be to die again for our salvation. He will come bringing the full blessings of our salvation. He will bring heaven to earth. Jesus has achieved great things. He has won great rewards for his faithfulness. And he will share those rewards with us. So when we think of the future, our hope and expectation is not based on our performance. It's based on Jesus' performance. He won an eternal inheritance and he will share it with his people. Both our peace in the present and our hope for the future are based on what Christ has done. So if you are searching for the heart of Christianity, here it is. You and I have not drawn up a covenant with God. We don't set the terms for how we relate to him. We relate to God on his terms. And the terms of his new covenant are very simple. God says, rely on me, not on yourself. And when it comes to the forgiveness of your sin, rely on the blood of my son that pays for your sin. When it comes to your hope for the future, rely on the reward my son has earned for you. Verse 27 says, one day all of us will stand before God's judgment seat. If we arrive there relying on our own merits, there is no hope for us. But if we arrive there relying on Jesus, then we already know God's verdict. He will tell us, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Welcome to your eternal inheritance. So the question is, are you trying to have an old covenant arrangement with God? An arrangement that says, if I perform, God will be happy and maybe he'll like me. In the end, that is a hopeless, joyless way to live. You can never perform well enough. Any hope that you have has to be an uncertain hope. If that's the way you've been looking at things, Sign up to God's new covenant. Put your trust in Jesus and you will find firm hope. You'll find solid joy. And if you are a Christian, here are your grounds for joy and peace. Our circumstances can be as changeable as the weather is. Dark one day, sunny the next, freezing the day after that. But our reasons for joy and peace 
are unchangeable as Christians. Through the work of Jesus, our sin is paid for and our future is eternally bright. Charles Wesley has summed up our situation like this. In Christ, accepted and brought near and clothed in righteousness divine, I see the path to life made clear and all your merits, Lord, are mine. Death, hell and sin are now subdued. All grace is now to sinners given. And so I plead the atoning blood and by your gift receive your heaven. That's true of every man or woman who is in Christ, who has put their faith in him. We have reason to celebrate what Christ has done and we're going to use Wesley's words to respond to what we've heard. The song begins, Yes, finished. The Messiah dies.